I don't think you can know what it's like to be an entrepreneur or a business owner until you do it. And there's different ways to do it. Like I was saying before, I don't record podcasts on Mondays or Fridays. You know, I don't do more than three in a day and I rarely ever do three in a day. If you go about it that way, and I I can do this as a luxury because House Money Media, while yes, it makes money and yes, while adulting is easy, makes some money. Those are, as of right now, kind of passion projects and not things that I have gone all in on from a time perspective. I feel like if I ever give either one or both of those 40 hours, I will never claw it back. I will always do that. And so I put very clear boxes around that and I operate accordingly. We're only going to grow so fast. We're only going to have so much content. We're only going to post so many episodes and write so many blogs because that's what me and, and my business partners have wanted to do to this point. How do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning? Come with me as I interview top performers and delve into key areas of life. Habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. My guest today, together with her husband, has amassed a net worth of $2.5 million before the age of 35. With about a dozen rentals in Southern Florida, she was able to leave her W-2 behind in the middle of 2023 and begin teaching finance and real estate concepts to anyone on the internet who would listen. Her goal is to show everyone that adulting is easy through financial education. She did it all despite her brother embezzling her allowance money for Pokemon cards and buying a couple too many Hollister shirts with her teenage paycheck from Chick-fil-A. I promise you don't need to start as early as the online money gurus tell you. She also doesn't know it yet, but we're sworn enemies based on her fandom of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Lauren Keenamond, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Blake. That was great. So I was wondering if you could, off the hop here for me, give me the sort of layman explanation of the four pillars of real estate investing, because I think it's a good foundation for a lot of what we'll talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. And some of that, I guess, depends on whether you own a property outright or if you have a loan on it, right? But let's assume a traditional situation where you have a down payment, you have a loan on it. The number one thing that you're going to get is appreciation. I think everybody understands that generally in the United States of America, at least all across North America, I guess, property values go up. There was obviously one big exception to that around 2008, right? But so the property is going to go up in value. You're also going to cash flow. Ideally, what you are bringing in is more than what is going out. And that includes what you're setting aside for repairs and maintenance. So even once you take away all those things and vacancy, there's some money left over that's cash flow. Those are two things that people are really familiar with, I think. There's another one. It's a little nebulous. It's called tax benefits. And there's a lot of different reasons to get into real estate. The main tax benefit is depreciation, which is a non-cash expense meaning you don't actually have to spend the money, but the government lets you pretend like you are for tax purposes, right? You're quote unquote depreciating your building, even though it's appreciating in value, like we said for pillar one there. Those are the first three. Number four is the one that you may not have if you don't have a loan on it, right? And that's loan pay down. And so these amortized loans, and if you've ever looked at an amortization schedule, which is very scary and they have to give you one now, whenever you buy a property and you have a loan on it, most of your payment is going to be an interest at first, 
right? But there's some of it that's going to be for your principal pay down. And every single month, your principal is getting paid down more and more. So those are the four pillars of real estate. And that's why real estate, it can be more lucrative than it seems at first blush. For example, with stocks, if you own $100,000 worth of stocks and it goes up 5% in value, you're getting $5,000. If you have a $100,000 home that you put 10% down on and it goes up 5% in value, you made $5,000 on your $10,000 down payment versus the stock example, $5,000 on $100,000. And so that's why uh, real estate can be pretty powerful because of those four pillars. I don't think I've ever heard anyone evangelize harder for a form of investing than real estate investors. Is there something that those of us who, and I say those of us who aren't, because for all of my Canadian friends, myself included listening, you definitely don't get pillar number two that we talked about there. That doesn't exist for us. Cash flow is not a thing here. Is there a reason outside of those four pillars that you or other real estate investors picture as why people lean so hard towards real estate investing? I know some people that have invested in real estate, even just one or two or three properties over the course of their whole life and never buy a stock. And the reason is it's a lot more tangible than a stock. So do I fully understand the idea that one share of Apple means I own a piece of Apple, the company, and what that looks like? I do. But some people don't really kind of get what that means. They think it's speculating. They think it's gambling. They don't think of a stock as owning a part of a company. But they very much understand that when they own a property, what that is, they can drive by it. They can see it. There's pictures of it. There's probably tenants in it. You know, for example, I mean, obviously you could have land and commercial buildings and things like that. But I think that's why a lot of people like to invest in real estate because I don't think you have to be particularly sophisticated or educated to understand what it is that you own. Yeah, I think, and this probably comes at it from a different angle, that a lot of what you see online from a lot of the real estate people is, I own 15 properties or I own 120 properties or whatever. But there's, to your point, probably a lot more real estate investors that you don't see that are those mom and pops who have their teacher's job and they just own one rental property on the side and that's what their retirement plan is. And I think we've, I'm just sort of thinking through this now is that bubble of not seeing anything that isn't online anymore. We don't get the chance to understand that there's a lot more landlords out there than there is people preaching to be landlords on social media. Absolutely. And there are people on social media that are doing super well. But, you know, one of the most successful real estate investors that I know from my hometown of St. Pete, not anywhere on social media. I mean, maybe a little bit on Facebook because I'm friends with him. But, you know, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that are doing this and there's a lot of mom and pops. And those are the examples that I've seen in my family or my husband's family is, you know, people that have one or two rentals and that's all they ever have. And so in some cases, that's all the investment they ever do and they retire, and that's all they've got. I think it's like something like 50% of people in the US still don't own a single stock or something like that. I wonder, you talked briefly about 2008, and I just wonder how much of what we see in the online influencer space of real estate is based on the fact that there's not a lot of 55-year-olds talking about real estate because everything that they had disappeared in 2008. 
and everybody that you see talking about real estate as the best asset class is under 40 and hasn't sort of experienced anything that isn't the appreciation that you're talking about. And I'm sort of relating this back to, did you see that like super viral video of the guy? It was like a couple and they were talking about how they like paid for their lifestyle and the guy's just talking about, oh yeah, I watch the stock and then when it goes up, I buy it. And then when it goes down, I sell it. And I'm just picturing like that in real estate form in 2008 because that guy does not exist on social media anymore. And I'm just picturing all these real estate influencers. What would happen if we have another 2008 moment? Well, social media, I mean, shoot, computers are somewhat somewhat recent for some people that are living, right? Social media, certainly. I mean, I think MySpace came out when I was like 15 and Facebook, I was like 17, right? I mean, there are people that were 45 or 50 when that came out that probably never super adopted it. So I think there are people that totally have invested all the way through 2008. I mean, if people, if you were, let's say if you were 30 in 2008, so you're like 40s to 50s now, yeah, maybe that was a hard time. But there were people that were 40 then and they bought, they bought in 95, they bought in 2000, they bought in 2005, they bought in 2010, and they just bought all the way through. I just don't know that those people are on social media. There's definitely a recency bias when it comes to social media for that reason. It doesn't just apply to real estate, though. I mean, the stock market went down, what, 33% in 2008. And so there's a lot of people, myself included, when Lehman crashed, that same week I turned 19, you know, so and I'm 34. Like, I feel like, like I had a whole career. I've already left it. And still, it's been basically bull market my entire life. I mean, we had a little bit of bear market the last two years or so, but we haven't really seen horrible economic times. We saw some horrible times, but, you know, really so far the US government basically bailed us out, right? So a lot of recency bias. And I will say, if you think back, if you had investments and if you think back, especially stocks to how you felt in March, April of 2020, when it went down like it did, that's how you're going to feel the next time it happens. And so behave accordingly. I felt, this is so strange saying it out loud, but like, I felt relief because I was like, oh, I learned in business school. This would happen. Yeah. I was so excited to buy stuff cheaper. Oh, yeah. We bought, you know, not a lot, but, you know, probably eight or $10,000 that yeah. month and, and $1,000 a week for the for a few years after that. And yeah, it, it felt like, oh, this is really, this is how it's supposed to go. There's a little bit of unease in me when we're at all time highs again so quickly and, you know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of recency bias there, especially on social media. And then also, I think this is something that I I think about a lot. What is the difference between me being 19 in 2008 and if I was 25? What kind of person would I be? You know, like the great financial crisis or the global financial crisis or whatever it is we're calling it nowadays. You know, depending on who you are and your age group is going to depend on, I think, almost how old you were and where you were in life at that point. Yeah, I think about that butterfly effect a lot in various different aspects of my life. And it's crazy to imagine. Mm -hmm. If I had been off by a year or two here or there, my parents had moved to somewhere different, totally different life, right? I think about my sister a lot, who was a junior in 2020 in high school. And what an awful time. I mean, really like terrible like you're just doing the SATs and and she was in something called the IB program. So she's got these exams coming up the following year and she's in all of these APs. I mean, 
what an awful time. I don't know that there was a good age to be during COVID, but being a junior in high school really seemed horrible. Like I really feel for her on that. I'm glad I wasn't in high school or college. I think there is, and tying this back to the social media thing a little bit, I think there's this narrative that when you become a landlord, it's easy or not easy. Easy is the wrong word. It is I love the word easy. Less info or less less work for lack of a better explanation than what would be a regular job. And I think you do a great job of explaining the fact that actually this is still a job and even though I'm compensated well and even though this is the path that I'm on and I don't have a traditional job, this is still a job. Can you walk me through a little bit of what a week for you looks like on the landlord side of things? I know you've got long-term and short-term. You do a lot of other stuff on the side, but leaving the online business aside for a minute, what does your typical week look like in terms of managing 14 rentals? Yeah, thank you. I have 12 right now, by the way. But yes, I probably need to update that somewhere. But anyways, so I am glad that you said that. I do try to portray a very realistic view. I know we're going to ignore house money media and the, the online business education side of things for now, but I would be more successful at that if I did not tell the truth. Do you know what I mean? Like if I was selling Absolutely. some kind of dream, I want, I don't want anybody to get into this and be like, Lauren told me it was easy, even though, you know, adulting is easy, but adulting is easy. You know, and on the House Money podcast, I have a segment called Real Estate is Easy. It's about making it easier, right? But my typical week, I give myself like a really chill Monday as much as possible. I don't schedule podcast recordings for that day. I don't do a lot of paperwork and things like that. I don't have calls with my cleaners. I don't place inventory orders. I don't really do a whole lot on Mondays. I I do some things, but I let myself ease into the week. Tuesday is is a big day for me. That's where I do a, you know, all of the kind of paperwork side of things for the short-term rentals, especially. I leave my reviews from the prior week. I release security deposits. I respond to people's reviews. I pay my cleaners and I do this like channel bridge from Airbnb and VRBO into OwnerRes, which is the property management software that I, that I use. That all doesn't take a whole lot of time. Right now, it's a little more because it's it's peak season, but say maybe maybe an hour, place some orders, you know, based on inventory. And every day, usually between 11 and 2, sometime in there, I will check to make sure that all the guests that are checking in have submitted their renter's agreement and their security deposit and that they have their welcome information to check into the property. And then I, you know, throughout the day, it's where how you're answering guest communications. Every other day, somebody questions why they have to put a security deposit in on Airbnb because I've never had to do it before. And so I'm always kind of tweaking my automated communications. But almost no matter what I do in terms of listing and communications, and people find a way to ask questions anyways. So there's a, you know, there's usually probably every day I answer a couple of questions. And so it's hard to say, okay, how much time do I spend on this? I normally say it's like 20 minutes a day. It's probably not that much, but it's also not like you sit down and then you do your 20 minutes. You know, you've got us, you're sort of on call. That said, I don't really hear from people after dinner time. Pretty much everybody that's going to check in checks in, no problem. And everybody kind of has their questions throughout the day. So, um, from the long term mental perspective, I don't deal much with that. There's really not much to do. This week, we did place a tenant and fill one of our vacancies. So, I, 
went over there today to give him kind of a fact sheet, make sure he had the key and everything. But my other tenants, I basically don't hear from like at all. I mean, occasionally be like, the AC's out. Okay, we'll send somebody over there. So I say, I generally say it's about 20 minutes a day and that's probably during season, off season, it's probably 10 minutes a day. And it is a job. I don't have a property manager. I manage everything myself. Property management is a job. That doesn't mean real estate investing is a job. Um, And this is certainly less work than I would do at a full-time job. I mean, my first year out of school, I worked at Toys R Us. I was a front-end department supervisor at Toys R Us. I made $28,000 that first year. You know, I make more than that on real estate. I spend definitely significantly less time and I'm not dealing with annoyed customers and staying up overnight on Thanksgiving and stuff like that. (laughs) I think a lot of, and this might be some of my built-in mindset, is I always think about the unseen mental tax of landlording. And the way you're phrasing that it almost makes it not totally flips it on my head for me because I still don't know that I ever want to be a landlord, especially not. I can't do it here. I can't afford anything. But the mental tax of, I guess, being in a job that you're just doing as a job versus landlording is not as aggressive as I'm picturing it in my head. Does that resonate a little bit? So I'll answer that this way. Well, not my husband and I talk about this a lot. When I was in college, I did, you know, got a finance degree from the University of Florida, 2008 to 2012. And I had some online classes. And so I would have classes, let's say Tuesday, Thursday, and nothing, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, I had a part time job for most of it, but that didn't mean I didn't have school. There were like lectures I needed to watch and homework I needed to do. And I felt all the way through college, always this tickle in the back of my mind that there's something I should be doing. When I got a full-time job, well, at Toys R Us, the stores open all the time. So that's not a good example. But after that, when I was working a day job, it's like I left at five and then no one was working. And it was like really being off. On Saturday, no, nobody was working. It was not like I'm not missing anything when I'm not there. With business ownership, like my husband being a part owner of an engineering firm, he's a little bit back to the online school. You know, there's all the business is always there. And landlording is like that too. It's just not as much pressure at the end of the day. I mean, there's guests relying on me, but I know they're going to get in. I know they've got clean linens. I know they got a place to sleep. You know, do, do things go wrong here and there? Sure. When it comes to tenants, you know, same thing. Like they're safe. They've got good places to live. Um, as long as I'm responsive enough, everything is going to be okay there. And from the ownership perspective, it's only really me and my husband that are affected. You know, wh- when I see him running his firm, it's different. I mean, that's a whole bunch of people that have families to feed and that's a lot more pressure. So I guess if you look at a continuum, there's, you know, working for somebody else at a job that you don't super care about. You really can turn your brain off at the end of the day. Owning a business, you can't turn your brain off almost ever. And I think landlording somewhere in the middle. I don't know if that doesn't really answer it, but that's how I decided to take it. No, it's great. That makes total sense. I think it's a balance of, I don't, do you follow uh, George Mack on Twitter? Mm -mm. Great follow if you don't. He's got this concept that he talks about that's basically hidden versus observable metrics. And the idea is that almost everything we talk about is an observable metric, money being the most observable metric because it's, it's easy to talk about. And hidden metrics as the sort of peace of mind that you have on that continuum that you're talking about. 
and being able to balance those where do you want to fall on one versus the other. And then maybe getting into the online business side of things. Obviously, we've talked about that a little bit. You've got House Money Media. And how is that... Not necessarily how do you factor that into the continuum, because obviously this is just something that you love and it's something that you started doing because you enjoy it so much. But where do... I guess I'll ask the question this way. How much should someone factor in maybe some of those hidden metrics if they can to the idea of becoming a business owner if they have an inclination for it? I don't think you can know what it's like to be an entrepreneur or a business owner until you do it. And there's different ways to do it. So I, like I was saying before, I don't record podcasts on Mondays or Fridays. You know, I don't do more than three in a day and I rarely ever do three in a day. This is a three in a day day, right? If you go about it that way, and I, I can do this as a luxury because house money media, while yes, it makes money and yes, while adulting is easy, makes some money. Those are, as of right now, kind of passion projects and not things that I have gone all in on from a time perspective. I feel like if I ever give either one or both of those 40 hours, I will never claw it back. I will always do that. And so I put very clear boxes around that and I operate accordingly. We're only going to grow so fast. We're only going to have so much content. We're only going to post so many episodes and write so many blogs because that's what me and, and my business partners have wanted to do to this point. The opposite side of that I see is, is with my husband with the engineering firm. And that's, it's really all encompassing. So I guess it depends. Like, is it like a house money is a group of, a, a group of entrepreneurs and real estate investors that are doing something sort of as a hobby for fun that may also make money versus like, well, you have to make money. I think it's very hard to keep those metrics at bay and to keep it off of your mind. And to some extent, I think you can be born an entrepreneur. I think for the most part, honestly, entrepreneurs are born versus made. But I, if you're not a natural entrepreneur, which I don't really consider myself that way, I think you can kind of minor in it versus like you're either born majoring in it, but you can learn to minor in it is sort of how I think of it. But I don't think you can know until you do it what it's like. I think that's, I've never heard it phrased that way. And that's actually a fantastic analogy. I love the idea of, of minoring and entrepreneurism. I mm -hmm. think that's very aligned to where I am when you're talking about only doing X number of things, only making sure you're putting out Y pieces of content. I had a conversation with a uh, friend of mine who I've recently become friends with in the past six months or so, we recorded a podcast on New Year's Day. And the idea was to sort of combat the, not combat, but to push back a little bit against the Alex Hormozis of the world and needing to do everything all the time, all at once. Yeah. And understand that there was room for me to grow what I was doing while still factoring in some of the lifestyle design, like you're saying, like you don't work on Fridays and you ease into the day on on Mondays. And I think making a conscious effort to everybody who thinks they want to become an entrepreneur says that they're going to become an entrepreneur to work less. And I have never met one that works less than what they do at their full-time job. No, I mean, they work, I would say, more flexibly. Like my husband has started playing doubles tennis and he plays that from like 8 to 10 a.m., sometimes. 
And the people there are like, how can you do this? But you know what he did? He worked from 5 to 7.30. And then he went and played 10. Then he goes back, right? So when you're the business owner, you can do things like that. But you're not saving any weight. There's there's more weight on your shoulders than you would ever have with just a regular W-2 that you don't have ownership in. There's no question. It's just, it's different. It's different. It depends on the business, I think. It depends on the person that you are. And you cannot paint entrepreneurship with a broad brush. I don't even care if you're Hormozy. I love him. You know, I've read some of his books and stuff. Like he's he's great, but you can't say anything definitively. And I think that's what's hard about social media, especially Twitter, you know, with the, the limit of characters. Well, I guess they're not as we're not as limited as we once were, right? But or X. But it's still Twitter. It's Twitter. I, I say Twitter too. <laughs> I say Twitter too. And and my business partner Alan called me a boomer because I called it Twitter. I was like, no, dude, that's fine. whatever. Yeah. Anyways, oh, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, well, like we're, you know, you're, you're limited to these snippets, right? And social media is like highlight reels and snippets. And it's hard to add that nuance. Yeah. In. Not only that, it rewards the no nuance, right? Does it ever? Yeah. You've talked about feeling connected to your future self as a reason for a portion of your success. What's something you're doing right now as a thank you to your future self? I don't know how I started with this mindset, but I remember having this conscious thought when I was 22 years old. I thought, yes, I'm working for Lauren, who's 22, but I'm working for Lauren, who's 62 also. That's what I thought I was going to retire in 40 years. And I don't know how you could possibly cultivate that mindset. There's like, you know, either either your personal or either your future self is a friend or a relative of yours or they're a stranger. Like, I, I don't really know how you make that happen. Right now, what I'm doing for my future self is like truly like dieting, trying to, I mean, it, you know, lifestyle change, call it what you want. Like I'm trying to lose some weight. I rolled my ankle playing pickleball last year. I gained some weight after that. I've lost that weight, but I want to lose some more. You know, that's the main thing that, you know, and I, Hormozy doesn't look like this ever happened to him, but when your businesses are going crazy and your real estate's going crazy and everything, like it's easy, at least for me and my husband, it was to take the eye off the ball of the health side. And now that I've left my job, I feel like I have a lot more time. Like I'm lifting weights again. I just did cardio for a long time and I'm lifting weights again. And when I get back, I go in the jacuzzi and then I shower and then I ice my ankle because my ankle's still not doing great. Right. And then, and then I sort of get to work. And, you know, I'm able to go to the grocery store here and there to help my husband because he's, he's really the grocery guy. I would try to cook a little bit here and there to help him with that because I'm kind of the cleaner. He's the cooker. But yeah, that, that's what I'm doing. Financially, I'm not doing much. I'm not doing much to help my future self. I mean, unless house money becomes the biggest real estate education company, then I guess I am. But that's, you know, my business partner would call that a lottery ticket that I'm casting. That's not like a, like a 401k that I've got going on. You, know? you had this pretty clean off-ramp from the W-2 to real estate to passion project, entrepreneur, hobby whatever you want to call it. How do you typically think about, and maybe this ties into some of the financial education aspect, how do you think about encouraging other people to set up that sort of off-ramp? Because I think a lot of people have this idea in their mind that they have to go from zero to 100 and quit their job to start their entrepreneurship journey. And the survivorship bias there is real. So you only get the stories of the guys who quit their job and then started a unicorn company. How do you think about talking to 
the people who want that sort of off-ramp to the flexibility that we've been talking about. I think a lot of people probably leave their jobs too soon. Again, it's really hard to speak in absolutes, but I, you know, I have some friends that have done that and very quickly realized they were not financially ready to do that. The bright side there is if you're employable, you can go back and get a job. And if you don't have a bunch of dependents and stuff, I mean, I said this recently, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, it's very hard to, like, there are very few things you can't unwind. You can unwind almost everything except like kids, basically. Right. So for a while, it felt like I had three jobs. There was the real estate and not just the real estate managing like I'm doing now, like finding deals, making offers on deals, inspecting, buying, and then setting up, renovating, setting up. There was all that going on. Then there was adulting as easy as this pre-house money media. And, you know, what did a lot of live Twitter spaces and stuff. And all the adulting is easy stuff had to be done at the end at the end of the day, really. And then my job was done during the day. And then the weekends were real estate. And for years, I mean, for years I did that. And then I'll know people where they're like doing it for like three months. And they're like, I just can't do it. I have to leave my job to focus on the side thing. And so like that's not long enough. I would say maybe I did it too long. I sort of didn't realize how long my days had gotten and how little downtime I had until I left my job. And I'm like, I can read. I can go in the jacuzzi. I can ice my ankle. Like, this is amazing. So I, I think a lot of people jump too soon. I can't really, you know, I've heard metrics when you're spending 50% as much time on your side hustle as you are your job, or when it's bringing in 50% as much as your job, then go to the side hustle. When you have, make sure you can go to your side hustle whenever you want. If you have one year of living expenses saved, like I've, I've seen all of these things. I don't think you can, I don't think you can put a number really on it, but I think you do need to stretch yourself harder probably than most people do than what's comfortable. I mean, I think before you leave your, leave your job to do your side hustle, you basically need to probably be doing like 10, 12 hour days, six days a week for a while and beef up that side thing. That's my opinion. That's what I did. I don't know if if that should be a rule of thumb. It, again, it just, I, I feel, I sound like a broken record. It really does just depend on the person, but I think a lot of people jump way too soon. The bright, the bright side is if you fuck it up, you can unwind it. Like you can go back, you can get a job, you know? So it's not like you're, you're burning the boats. Yeah. I love the unwinding thing. I have a excerpt from a this is a James Clear newsletter from last week or the week before. And he talks about decisions in three ways that are hats, haircuts, and tattoos. And it says most decisions mm. are like hats. Try one. If you don't like it, put it back and try on another. The cost of the mistake is low, so you can move on quickly and try a bunch of hats. Some decisions are like haircuts. You can fix a bad one, but you won't fix it quite. You might feel foolish for a while. That said, don't be scared of a bad haircut. Try something new. It's usually worth taking the risk. If it doesn't work out, by this time next year, you'll have moved on and so will everyone else. Few decisions are like tattoos. Once you make them, you have to live with them. Some mistakes are irreversible. Maybe you want to move on for a moment, but then you glance in the mirror and are reminded of the choice all over again. Even years later, the decision leaves a mark. So when you're dealing with an irreversible choice, move slowly and think carefully. And I think a lot of people try to put more things in that tattoo bucket than are necessary. And I, I would hazard a guess that most decisions probably fall in the haircut category and a lesser amount in the, in the hat category. But I think that's, it's a great call out and understanding that all the skills that you've built up at your W-2 don't go away just because you quit and have to go back. Absolutely. 
James Clear, much more eloquent than me. (laughs) What's the biggest lesson from your sales life that has been helpful in your either real estate journey or moving over to the online media space? A lot of people use a baseball reference. People just love this idea that the best baseball players in the world get out 70% of the time. I mean, Hall of Fame career if you fail 70%. Like, that's awesome. People love that. I think of it when it comes to sales and maybe life, you're not going to get it right every time. And as much as you have a quota of yeses, quota of home runs, say, you have a quota of no's and you have a quota of strikeouts as well. And so if you know, sticking with baseball, if you know you're the kind of player that strikes out 50 times a year, I don't know if that's a normal number or not, but let's pretend it is. It's been a long time since I've been into baseball. Been really into hockey, as you said. And the Rays pissed me off. So <laughs> let's say you're the baseball player. You know the kind of player that gets 50 strikes a year, 50 strikeouts a year, and you get one. It's like, sweet, only 49 more strikeouts to go. You know, it's the same thing. I learned that in sales. You know, when somebody says no, when somebody doesn't buy, there's a numbers game and something's going to work out. Somebody's going to say yes, but it's, it's this relief in failure that is very helpful. And we had a tenant move out recently and the, the unit needed a lot of work. And it was like, dang, now we got to do all this work right now. It was would have been nice to push that a year or whatever. But there was a relief there too. Cause you're like, you know, it's coming. Oh no, it's you done. Know, yeah. And I've got eight ACs that I know are going to go. And when those start going, I'm going to be like, sweet, that one's done. And that one's done. And that one's done. It's so... I think sales helped me a little bit with that, just knowing like not everything is great and you need all of these no's to get to these yeses and some of these yeses are home run deals, you know? You talk about at House Money Media, the differentiation between season one, two, and three investors. Can you give me a breakdown on those? Yeah. So season one investor, those are like our bread and butter. That's kind of what most of our listener base is right now. So that's what we're primarily cultivating. These are people that maybe have a primary residence, maybe have a rental, you know, the kind of in that getting started, we call it like first generation real estate investors, kind of getting started out zero to four doors. And that's who we primarily are focused on right now. Get, you know, general education, mom and pop type investors. Season two are, it's like you're into real estate. Like you have left your job, your real estate's paying for your bills and you and you want to go further. Judging by even like how we define season one and season two, I'm like a 1.5. My partner, Alan, is more of the the season two. I mean, he's got 300-ish units in these multifamily partnerships in Atlanta, along with his own 17-door portfolio. But it's, you know, this idea of like syndication and partnerships and commercial loans and that. The preseason investors are people that really you're just not ready. You, you, need, to, you need to do some personal finance work before you buy a place. You need to maybe tackle some debt, get your credit in order, get your debt to income ready so that you can buy, maybe get a down payment and do some baseline personal finance education before you can do the real estate education. You, and I know a lot of people sort of mention this as far as real estate investing goes. And this is another one of the walls that I put up in front of myself. That's probably not an actual wall, but I like to put there just in case and and I can break it if I ever need to, is this idea of 
and especially before you move into the world of syndication that you're talking about, it's a lot of doing it on your own and it's finding a team that can help you do it. And I know that that is one of the biggest barriers to, I'm projecting here, but probably a big barrier for people for getting into real estate investing as a whole. Do you have a process that you go through for vetting people to bring them into your team? And does that apply elsewhere? That's a good question. I mean, you can get into syndications as a limited partner in LP with a hundred grand and then you're, you don't find the deal. It's just the general partner finds the deal and sets it all up and they just need your money. So you can get into real estate passively as an LP in a syndication. I don't think you could be the GP without having any experience. The biggest member of my team, the most important one is the cleaners. And so I talk a lot about, you know, what kind of cleaner do you want? You certainly want somebody, the biggest thing for a short-term rental, you know, an Airbnb cleaner is that they already clean other Airbnbs and short-term rentals. I mean, it's very different than cleaning somebody's home. Mainly, there's not some huge time deadline. Like maybe you don't have to flip this thing. There's normally like a lot of laundry and stuff like that involved. But also there's, you have to gauge whether this particular person can look at the property in, in three ways. One is the owner, one is the guest, and one is the cleaner. And so from the owner perspective, they need to be able to walk in and be like, all right, what's here that wasn't last time? What's missing that was here? Is there anything broken? Okay, we have enough soap, right? The cleaner's thinking, do I have enough soap for this guest? If they put their owner hat on, they're like, okay, do I have the soap for the next guest too? What's our inventory situation? And then from the guest perspective, when a guest walks in, does it look clean? Does it look bright? How does it smell? What's the AC set at or the heat? I don't use the heat that much, but like, What's the AC set at when they walk in? Are they going to be comfortable? What are they going to say? Like, let's look at it from that perspective. So that's the cleaner. I, I ask questions to get at those things. So I guess when someone's going to be a member of your team, think what you need from them and then tailor questions to figure out if they have those mindsets that you need. A lot of building a team is trial and error. And maybe this comes back to the unwinding thing. The lawyer that I used to set up my first LLC I didn't use for a second one. I just didn't feel like we got enough attention. I felt the key was expensive and that's okay. I just moved on. You can do that with pretty much any member of your team, but it's trial and error. Same with real estate agents. I'm still always looking, always running through those. Never really used one twice. Landscapers. I found that these people are great for like a year. Then you need another one. You know, I, I don't think the biggest barrier to real estate investing is fear. It's not building your team. It's not having the down payment. It's not knowledge. It's fear and lack of confidence, in my opinion. As you walk through that fear, I'm sure you've seen a lot of other people that go through that. Is there some underlying cause there or is everybody coming at that fear from a different angle? Are there prescriptions that we can give to people to sort of overcome that fear if there's... Loss aversion is a huge thing. And that's this idea that like, it hurts us more to lose $100 than we feel joy to find $100. At the very basic level, humans are loss averse. And this probably works for all of investing, but just sticking to real estate, they're afraid they're going to put $20,000 into it and they're not going to get that $20,000 back at a very basic level. They're not looking at what if I make $100,000 on that $20,000. And it's this, they go through these what ifs 
What if a car hits it? What if a train hits it? What if it burns down? What if the rents are lower than I think? What if the insurance goes up? What if this? What if that? What if the inspector missed something? But they, I mean, what if, what if that area doubles in value in the next two years? What if you have an amazing tenant who stays for 10 years and treats the place like it's their very own? What if you create such a wonderful short-term rental unit that people come through there and all they do is give you praise and thank you for giving them an amazing place to stay rather than being in Canada where it's snowing? That's just a dig at you. (laughs) Since you hurt, since you made a dig at my lighting, right? So there's what if good things that I don't think people focus on. I don't know. I suppose if you want to go through an exercise, you can do that. You need to, I mean, part of growing as a human being is knowing what you're thinking, knowing what your subconscious is telling you and paying attention and rewiring some of that in positive ways. You know, if you have negative self-talk, turn it around. If you find yourself saying a lot of negative things, force yourself to say positive things. I don't know if you need to journal and meditate and all of those things, which I'm not good at and I don't do. But if you run through the or the, the gratitude thing, look in the mirror and tell yourself three things you're grateful for or manifest, try to manifest some things. Right? You, there's a lot of different things that you can do. But I think truly, if you just stop when you're having these what if negative thoughts, how, just force yourself to say some what if positive things. And if you don't take any risks, your life is going to stay the same. If you even have a basic interest in real estate investing, there's something that you want to change in your life. And if you do not do it, that thing will not change. I think that's great. And I think that's, this is going to sound weird, but almost positioned as the best case scenario for you. And mentality is a tough thing that's not entirely solved by education, but I would posit that the vast majority of it is solved by education. So the the work that you're doing to help people get over these fears, I think is is a great step in the right direction for sure. Yeah. Is it Atomic Habits? Where the guy talks about like going on streaks and changing your identity or whatever. And so you're like, I'm the kind of person that accomplishes things. I'm going to stare at this picture for 30 seconds every day for 30 days just to say I did something, just to accomplish something. And then you can accomplish more things. It's it's weird. It's like part of how our brain works. But if you are making conscious self-improvements in your life and in your finances, even if they're small, they should you should get some momentum. Like You have the flywheel where you push it around a couple of times. It's very hard to push. But once it gets going, it does not stop. You know, your first real estate deal, it may be a little difficult. You may not do as well on it as you think, but you will learn a lot. And over time, you'll build equity. And then you can buy two more deals. A little more time passes, you can buy four more deals. A little more time, you buy eight or 10 or 12. And that's that flywheel. But that works for, for growth as well. And I, I think investing whether it's real estate or you know, just really making any financial strides, I think you should try to make personal growth strides at the same time. And I now am going back and trying to make some health strides at the same time. But if you can get the health, the finances, and the personal growth and mindset in order and just get a little bit better every year, 1% better every day would be like an insane amount of compounding. And people say that, but that's that's actually absurd when you look at that. Make it get a little better every year. And I think that's when you really start to just sing as a human being. You become who you become who you're supposed to be. And then I think you it's very hard to have regrets after, you know, after 10 years, if you are doing all of those things and putting them all together, 
it's hard to regret what you've been doing for the last 10 years. If you do nothing, I don't see how you wouldn't regret it. Doing nothing. I mean, that's, that's like the worst thing you can do is do nothing for a very long time. I think dissolving some of this fear through education, you had a sort of viral tweet thread about basic math behind purchasing a property is basically just third grade math. And you did it in a Google spreadsheet. Can you maybe walk through the third grade math that everybody needs to know? So the top of the income statement, if you will. Well, the, f- the first thing you're going to do, we, we call it underwriting now. You can call it deal analysis. You can't just look at a house and be like, it's listed for 250 The last house around it sold for 250 I can buy this for 250 some people do that and that, that that's fine. I guess like you're not overpaying for it. But what you need to figure out is, you know, what are, what's the what are the four pillars situation that I've got going on here? And you you know, you can call appreciation the cherry on top if you want, but it's how much money are you bringing in in terms of like rent or if we're talking about short-term rentals, your average daily rate. And then there's other things too, like can you charge for parking? Can you charge for storage? Can you charge for coin laundry, you know? All of these things, what is coming in the top? So that's, I guess, addition, right? And then you are, we're going to add again, we're going to add up all of our expenses. We're going to make some assumptions about how, what the vacancy is going to be. It's like 5% per year. That's like, you know, one month every couple of years. Is it 10% per year? Like, you know, around like a month a year, you know, what is your vacancy going to be? Or in short-term rentals, is it, you know, booked 50% of the time or whatever? Make your assumptions for vacancy, make your assumptions for regular expenses, you know, whatever utilities you pay, interest, insurance, all of those things, not the mortgage, right? But all these other expenses that you pay, and then your little allotment for capital improvements and maintenance. If you know you need a $5,000 AC in a couple years, divide that out. How much do I need to be putting aside for that every month, right? You subtract. There's a, so we're added the expenses, but we're also now we're subtracting that from the income. And then you're left with what's called your net operating income. And then there's there's all these different things that you can do. And it, it's like we make it kind of crazy jargon. You know, actually, House Money, we just put out a, a glossary of terms, right? But then you have your it. net operating income and you can subtract your your mortgage from there and get down to your cash flow. But then it's this idea. Then you then you do some dividing. And these are the different different metrics. Do you want to calculate your cap rate? So then you have your net operating income and you divide that by the value, which you know you can use the price. The purchase price is pretty typical. You get your cap rate. You want to get your cash on cash return. You take the cash that you put in, you know, down the cash that you put into the property for a renovation and you take your income and you divide it by that. And then there's your cash on cash return. And so you can check, you know, all these different metrics, but it really is simple math. But I don't suggest relying on just cap rate or just cash flow or just cash on cash return. Don't just rely on one or you will not get the whole picture. And going back to that $250,000 house example, just because you're buying it and let's say, let's pretend it's worth $275 and you pay $250. Just because that looks good doesn't mean when you dive down, all of these other things are going to look good too. And part of the reason, this is a little bit next level, but you can take your money and you can like spend it on yourself. You can invest it in real estate. You can invest it in the stock market. 
you cannot make an educated decision about where to put your money if you don't know what you're going to get back on it. And if it's just enjoyment, that's fine. You can just get enjoyment out of your money. But if I'm running numbers and I'm seeing a 2% return on a property, it's better for me to take that money and put it in the stock market, right? And so these are the investment decisions that you need to be able to make. And it really is not hard. And you know what? I think probably most, we're talking about mom and pop landlords. I think most of them bought houses at market value and rented some, rented them out. And after 30 years, that turns out fine too. It's one of those things that we overcomplicate for the sake of overcomplicating. Who was I listening to on a podcast the other day talking about the idea that basically if there's a wall of text or if you're being intentionally obfuscated, that there's probably intentionally something to hide there. And uh, I think the the biggest example of that was like the early days of being a stockbroker before you know the average everyday people had access to stocks. And I think stockbrokers, for example, had all of these terms and all of this jargon so that they could make money, so that that you needed them to execute on these trades. And of course, it's it's Bogle who definitely you know created index funds and very cheap trading and made it accessible to you know, the general population of people. And we owe him a lot for that. But jargon is a way to keep people out. Um, and what's even more annoying in these industries that are heavy jargon is when there's like multiple words for the same thing. Like that is the most annoying thing. But don't get intimidated by that. You know, that's why we created the glossary. So it's like, you know, these words that you're hearing, let's distill them down for you in an example. And that's what we try to do with our social media posts, you know, our blogs, our newsletter, and our podcast is take complicated topics, make them a little bit funny, but also tell some stories and make them make it more relatable. And it's easier to learn that way. Absolutely. When it comes to stories, we just walked through this whole example of of a spreadsheet. And while obviously all of the mechanics of the financials have to work out, being a landlord isn't really all about the money, or at least most people shouldn't think about it as all about the money. And the people who do think about it as all about the money, those are where you get the slumlord, everybody has a, my landlord is kind of a dick stories. I know that everybody loves to list off horror stories from the landlord sort of landlord side of things. But I've come to understand that one, those are a lot less common than maybe most people would understand. And two, I'm sure there's a much larger source of landlord unhorror stories, I'll call them. Do you have a, an unhorror story from a tenant or someone who's come to stay at a rental that comes to mind? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think when people are mad at their landlords or they automatically dislike their landlords, like, know that there's some tenants that are real dirtbags to us that probably preceded you and they're a little jaded. Do you know what I mean? Like, have a little bit of empathy sometimes, you know. Some landlords are dicks, like, don't get me wrong. But, you know, if what we're asking you to do is things like pay your rent that you signed a contract you would pay, like, don't call me a dick. Like, sorry, not sorry. I have a tenant. I asked him if I'm a good landlord. He's like, you're all right. That made me laugh. But I like him. He is he lives in my six unit apartment building. There's four short term rentals in there. And he 
goes above and beyond for certain things. You know, we had a hurricane recently and we you weren't able to get on the island after the hurricane, basically direct hit seven feet of water. And our property is at 15 feet, so it was fine. But I was like, hey, I gave him a code for the doors. We didn't have internet, but the code for the doors was saved. And I was like, can you just walk through every unit, check and see, like, are the windows all intact? Is there any leaks? You know, and he'll go do little things like that. He actually had to clean a unit, clean one of those units over that time because the cleaner couldn't get in like before the guest, but the guest got in. I don't know how. But, you know, he'll do little things like that. It was freezing recently. And so it's like, hey, can you go into this unit and drip this faucet? Can you drip the hose bib? You know, he tells me if the trash cans are in a weird spot or he'll just move them. Sometimes guests like get locked out and like lock their phone in the unit and then have to knock on his door. And then he calls me and I remind them what their code was because they forgot it and they didn't bring their phone. And, you know, he does a lot of little things. And he says he's going for tenant of the year every year is what he's he's going for. <laughs> so I think that's like a, a landlord unhorror story. I mean, it's not to the extent like we're not like best friends. You know what I mean? Like I don't go to his birthday parties. He doesn't go to my birthday parties, right? I mean, we live two and a half hours apart. So maybe that's maybe that's the real reason. But yeah, I mean that's I've I've had tenants in that situation that are really helpful and on my side when it comes to having the short term rentals. You know, the Airbnbs nearby. So that's the example that comes to mind. All right. So I have one final question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what's the last thing that you changed your mind about? My husband working longer to buy us a big house on the water. We've decided we're not going to do a lifestyle upgrade, and we're going to stay in the lifestyle that we're at and retire him as quickly as possible. It was a pretty big change. And we had changed our mind to that. Now we've changed it back and really, I think we're heading back to our financial dependence, retire early values and remember remembering our why and why we started this journey and what our values are. I reserve the right to change my mind again, but that's the, the most recent mind change that he and I have had. Absolutely. I think that's a great one. Lauren, where can we send people if they want to find all the great house money media and adulting is easy stuff? Sure. Housemoneymedia.com. Definitely check out our free stuff, you know, our social media, our videos, the podcast, the newsletter, the blogs, all of that. If you really want to deep dive in actual mentorship, Alan and I have both created some courses and we have a Discord community that you can join as well. And Adulting is Easy is a personal finance podcast because if we make adulting easier, we can make money. No, <laughs> if we make money easier, we can make adulting easier. Long day. So check out that if you like, you know, interview style podcast, which obviously you do check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Perfect. Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me.